uh, you'll hear a little bit of his, his story and background as, uh, as he talks this morning. He's got uh, a lot of different experiences from being a police officer, uh, but he spent the majority of his life in mission work. And so you'll hear a little bit uh, about that. And he's been going around um, really kind of conveying some of the things he's going to convey to you this morning. Um, he's been talking uh, about that with lots of people to, to speak truth into what's going on in culture. So would you give him a warm welcome this morning, please? All yours. Okay, so some of you I know, you've been so blessed. Some of you, I haven't been here for a couple of years now, but a long time I've been coming here, so some of your older siblings or something like that might remember some of your parents from the churches around. But uh, I work for Haven Ministries, which is a mission organization. We go out all over the world sometimes. We go to uh, Mormon events, Buddhist events, Muslim events. We talk to witches, Scientology atheists on campus, just about everybody you can imagine, different religions. We go to things called the Parliament of World Religions, which are huge collections every th three or four years. Last one was Toronto and two years ago. And every religion you can think of is all in one place. And the Dalai Lama will show up and all these other important people. And for us as believers, um, as missionaries, it's a target-rich environment because you literally go through the exhibit hall and here's this type of Mormon right next to this type of Muslim, right next to this kind of Buddhist next to a group of witches, and off you go, just right down the hall. It's really kind of fun for us, anyways. So that's what we do. My uh, second gig is basically I teach philosophy and world religions at different colleges around the, De the Denver area, and I've been doing that for a long time. And So if you have to take an intro to philosophy class, and I always tell people, you should take one, because that'll put you ahead of Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins and all these other allegedly smart people who say a lot of really stupid things. It's kind of fun to watch. Anyways. One of the things that you'll read about the first day of philosophy is you'll, you'll study Plato and Socrates almost always on the first day. And this is about 300, 350 years before Jesus. And they're talking about justice. Socrates would go from town to town. He'd leave Athens where he grew up. And in Athens, justice means one thing. Then you go over to Sparta, and justice means something completely different. But they use the same word. How can it be the same thing if, when it's so different? How can it be the same word? So a huge part of Plato is looking for this thing called universals, trying to find justice that applies to everyone fairly. And philosophers are still arguing about this 2,300 years later. But a 1,000 years before Plato, maybe more than a 1,000 years, Moses, or Moshe, writes in the Torah, the first five books of, of the Tanakh Old Testament, about justice, long before, about God's justice. So let me read you something from the very beginning of the Bible, Je Genesis 18, where Abraham says this, shall not the judge of the universe do what is right? So we are introduced to justice very early on in the Bible, that God does what is right, and that we can expect of him, that he is a righteous God. And the word that's used for justice virtually all the time in the Old Testament is a word called, I'm going to say it, mishvat. It's probably, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's used constantly, and we're going to talk a lot about mishvat. But about 1,500 years later after this, Right after Jesus, the Apostle John says this in Revelation 6, verse 10 to 11. I saw under the throne those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out unto the Lord with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judged and avenged our deaths, our blood, upon those who dwell on the earth? So from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, justice is a major theme. It's something we need to take seriously. As American Christians, we talk a lot about love. We talk a lot about God's love. 
And we don't very often talk about justice. Well, this is interesting because our culture has been tearing itself apart for the last six months, eight, eight months. Literally, violence and murder and all sorts of terrible things going on all over the country. Ironically, in the name of justice. So we loot stores in the name of justice. We burn down people's homes in the name of justice. We shoot cops in the name of justice. Well, is this justice? How can it be justice? Thomas, Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite reads, a very famous uh, black economist, says this. Is any of this true? And he's referring to this idea of white supremacy and white privilege and all this stuff we're going to talk about in a minute. He says, is any of this true? Should people be judged for what they had nothing to do with and others excused for what they're doing right now? How is it that people who had nothing to do with slavery are now guilty of that sin? How is it people who are committing murder not guilty of what they're doing right now? Well, welcome to modern justice in the United States. And it's a mess. It's not just the United States. It's all across the Western world. It's in Europe. Black Lives Matter is totally riots in Europe, virtually right after they started the riots here. This is weird. Europe hadn't had slavery for a long time either, even longer than the United States. And yet they're doing riots as if it was the same thing. And this is, should be a hint towards you. This has virtually nothing to do with skin color. Not at all. It has very much a lot to do with power and who takes control of things, which I'm going to try to explain to you through this talk. Okay, but more importantly than that, I want us to understand the difference between justice that God talks about and the justice that our culture is talking about, that our academy is talking about, that the teachers in high schools and universities all over the country have been slaughtering their students with. I went to the University of Denver for my doctorate studies about 20 years ago, started, and the degree was theology, philosophy, and cultural theory. And everybody knew what theology and philosophy meant. They'd ask me, well, what is this cultural theory? I said, it's just Marxism. <laughs> what shocked me in the last 10 years is this stuff is just blown out into the streets and blown out all over the country. What's even worse to me in the last two years is that Christian institutions, Campus Crusade, Southern Baptist, InterVarsity, so many other groups have basically bought into the social justice model become good little social justice warriors, become converged, become woke, or whatever language you want to use for this phenomena. It pains me dearly to see the Christian church acting like Marxists, reading like Marxists, acting on the basis of Marxist thought, because Marx hated Christianity with every ounce of his being. Anyways, let's go to that. Let's look at the, the Old Testament first, the Tanakh. I'm just going to read some verses to you real quickly here. Leviticus 19.15 says that mishpat, or justice, has nothing to do with partiality. Partiality is a violation, yet it's so human to be partial. Cultural anthropologists talk about tribalism, that we do tend, as fallen human beings, they don't say fallen, obviously, as fallen human beings, we, we tend to stick with our own. We like people that look like us, who think like us, who talk like us. And if they don't look like us, they don't think like us or talk like us, there's somebody else. That's somebody else's world. I don't live there, okay? That's our fallback position. And one of the things, I'll give you a little bonus, bonus that the younger kids didn't get. One of the things about, you know, the white people say this or black people say this. You hear a lot of people talking this way. White people always do this. As if there's a, a somehow some consensus among white people or black people or brown people or Asians or anybody else. All you have to do is go to, say, Europe. What is, you know, a lot of people here in the United States, about 70% of them have their background somehow in Europe. Well, let's look at the history of Europe for, what, 30 seconds? Do the French love the Germans? Do the Germans love the Italians? Does anybody love the Danish? Off we go. They've been slaughtering each other for thousands of years. I did this whole Ancestry.com thing a couple years ago. My daughter was pushing me and pushing me. 
And I always thought my heritage is German. I lived in Germany for a year. I speak German, all this kind of fun stuff. And I'm mostly Irish. What the heck? How did that happen? Something's wrong. And then the second one was English. And then the third one was Danish. And the fourth one is kind of German. And the last one was Jewish. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in L.A. But what's interesting about this whole thing is that I've been trying to kill myself for thousands of years. That's basically what Europe looks like. Does Africa look any different? No. Look at the slaughter 25 years ago with Bung the Hutu and the Tutsi. Or what the Zulus have done or what's been done to them. Guys, this is everywhere. Or do people in Asia all think alike? Oh, really? Like the Chinese and Japanese haven't hated each other for thousands of years. And all of them hate the Filipinos who hate all of them. And all of them hate the Okinawans. And off we go. There's no Asian voice. Or talk about, say, Central and South America. Ask a Mexican if they're Puerto Rican. See how that goes for you. Or a Puerto Rican if they're Mexican. See how that works out. There is no serious one voice speaks for all. But that's the way the media treats us, and that's the way these people are talking. Well, God hates partiality. And partiality is a, is a violation of God's justice. Secondly, Leviticus 24:22 says that mishpat needs to be applied to the people of Israel that the law has been given to, as well as to the strangers in their midst. So you've got the nation of Israel all amongst itself, and then you've got you know, Moabites, Edomites, all the different termites and everything that comes through the land, right? And they're the bad guys by definition. So you show them partiality. I want nothing to do with that guy. Part of the, 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 the amazing message of the Good Samaritan story is that he brings the Samaritan in, the most hated people. They hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Romans. It's so fascinating, and there's a whole history to it, I don't have time for it, but my point is, is that Mishvat is destroyed by this kind of partiality, and you have to show it both to your neighbors and your family and your friends, and to people you don't even know. You don't get an excuse for, well, at least I take care of my own. Uh-uh. What does Jesus say? Even the Gentiles know how to take care of their own. We have to show justice towards all people. Deuteronomy 1.16, you judge righteously, Mishvat, between two brothers. Again, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. My whole family's drug addicts and drunks, literally, most of them in and out of prison for most of their life. And I was heading that way if God hadn't grabbed me. Well, I come here to central Nebraska. I used to work for the Christian Resource Center out in Giltner years ago. And guess what? I see Christians acting like my family did, where they won't speak to each other for decades, literally decades. And I see these fights between brothers, and it breaks my heart. People I love. Who cannot be, I know how important the land is to y'all if you're a farmer. I understand that. It should not be destroying families. It should not be an issue of, oh, I like this brother better than that brother, or something like this. That destroys Mishvat, God says. Deuteronomy 10.18. Justice defends the widow, defends the orphan. This is huge. One of the main reasons, two reasons that the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom got destroyed. One is idolatry, and the other is related, that the rulers, the princes, the kings, the high priests, and everything were stealing from the widow and the orphan. How do you steal from the most defenseless people in the land? How do you even have a conscience left when you can do that? I'm not a big fan of the King James English, but there's this verse in the Old Testament when it talks about this, and it says, you grew fat off the widow. Wow. This is just evil beyond belief. I'll give you a modern thing that I talk about. Uh, I go to the Philippines every other year, have four Filipino children. For whatever reason, God's put the Philippines on our heart many years ago. But here's the interesting thing. I have a Filipino sister-in-law. I have many people I went to Bible college with that were out of the Navy and the Air Force bases that used to be in the Philippines. 
So I thought I knew what it was like in the Philippines until I went. And I, uh, I can't warn you enough. I can't tell you, I can't describe it enough for you to see what you'll see in, in Manila and other places. The poverty is crushing. You will see it. You will smell it. It just, as an American, you know, our poor have so much. And these people have nothing. It's just hard to see. All right, I'm supposed to go back there next summer, Lord willing. And I've been through it over and over again. It'll still hit me. Yet Benny Hinn, the supposed Christian leader, comes to the Philippines all the time and takes their money. My wife and I made a pledge. We'll never take a single peso out of the country. Can't. I can't live with myself taking money out of the country. We have literally walked up to strangers in the airport. Here, take this, because we can't do it. So Benny Hinn comes there, and he goes to Kampala in Uganda, which is just as poor, and he goes to Calcutta in India and takes their money so he can live in a $25,000 a night hotel room. How can you believe there's a, a righteous judge and steal from the poorest of the poor? That's the destruction of Mishpat. Something is terribly wrong. Deuteronomy 16, 17 says, Partiality destroys Mishpat. Well, we've already said that. It's actually in there dozens of times. Why does it have to say it dozens of times? Well, why does the Lord ever have to say anything more than once? Because we're a bunch of dumb mules, and we need several hits with a two-by-four, right? <laughs> Before we get a clue. So this is repeated over and over again, that we cannot be partial. But it's so endemic. It's so normal for us as human beings because we're fallen. And we feel comfortable around the people that are like us and horribly uncomfortable around the people who aren't. And sometimes we lash out and do terrible things to people who are not like us. 1 Samuel 8.18 says that bribes pervert justice. As your head of school has talked about the fact I used to be a cop before I was called as a missionary. Um, been in almost every prison and jail in Colorado. It's not a nice place. These are horrible places. Um, my point is, do cops sometimes take bribes? Yep. Do lawyers take bribes? Heck yeah. How about judges? Yep. Do politicians? Well, we got a huge scandal just broke out in the last two days. Some of the highest placed politicians in the country taking bribes from the Ukraine and Russia and China and all sorts of places. This destroys justice. It destroys it. God is a just God. And we act, we act, we act often like there's no God at all. Okay. Leviticus 16 says this, just waits. This is actually repeated several times, like the partiality one. There's ways to cheat people on every scale. Now, a lot of you guys are farmers, come from farm families, and you take your grain, this is harvest time, right? You're taking your grain down to the co-op, you get weighed and all that good stuff, you get, that's your payday, right? So you can imagine if you've got a stranger down at the co-op, you don't know him, you've known the other people forever, but now there's this new guy, maybe you don't trust him, and, and he just sneaks away a couple hundred bushels a time or whatever it is. It may not seem like it much, but over a while, it's serious money. But you don't see it. Uh, the old joke about having your thumb upon the scale when you're weighing stuff. That's an old phrase for a real idea. People have been in the business of defrauding others for the longest time. And God hates false scales. Hates it. He says it repeatedly. He also hates lying, deceit, slander, violence in the streets. Everything that we see going on in our country right now, it says that God hates that. It's all over the Proverbs. All over the Tanakh. Yet for many of us, we act like it's no big thing. Oh, well, that's somebody else. That's L.A.'s problem. That's Denver's problem. That's New York. That's not our problem. Certainly not in Central City is that our problem. Well, if God hates it, I think we need to take it seriously. Please turn your Bibles to Proverbs 21, verse 15. We'll look at something for a second here. 21, 15. 
Okay, Proverbs 21.15 says, When justice is done, that's mishpat, when mishpat is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Well, that makes sense. Very famous friend of the former President Barack Obama's name is Bill Ayers. And he was a member of the Weather Underground, which is this nasty group back in the 60s and early 70s that was bombing Pentagon, bombing police stations, killing people all over the country. And Bill Ayers is guilty as could be, but he never got charged because the FBI screwed it up. So Bill Ayers writes a book. He's standing on an American flag, and in books, I think the title is Guilty as Hell and Free as a Bird. That ticks me off, that he could kill cops and other people, and he does not get punished for that. Well, he will. Trust me. Our God is a God of mishpat. He's a God of justice. He takes these things seriously, all right, even if we don't. So now just turn the, the logic around of this whole thing. When justice is done, is a right, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to, to evildoers. Well, think of it this way. When evil is done, it is a terror to the righteous and a joy to the evildoer. Guys, there are high political people hugely high political people in our culture who are cheering on the riots. There are academics at universities all over the country cheering on the riots. We just had a, a guy shot in Denver last weekend. High-placed member of the Democratic Committee in Colorado came out and said, good, one last bleepity bleep bleep white supremacists. Same guy talks about the need to bring guillotines to the streets, like we're going to replay the French Revolution or something like that. What a wonderful world. Look at the people cheerleading for evil who have no problem. Mayors of their own cities talking about how it's just to steal from all the stores, to shoot cops. That's justice now. And when Black Lives Matter was speaking at the Campus Crusade Center three years ago, I have friends I've supported at Campus Crusade forever, and I called up one of them who's one of the leading members of Campus Crusade. I said, these people cheer the death of cops. How could you possibly have them speaking to your people? What possible message do they have to give your people? He says, well, you know, crew doesn't do very well in the inner city. I said, I can, I can show you all sorts of black pastors who know the inner city really well, and they don't call for the execution of cops, and they don't celebrate it like Black Lives Matter. Well, three years later, everything they do now at crew is about Black Lives Matter and Antifa and stuff like that. Something's terribly wrong here. All of a sudden, we're celebrating evil. How can that possibly be a Christian thing? Okay. <coughs> God cares about justice. And since he cares about it, we need to care about it, y'all. So let me compare that now. God's justice is impartial, hates falseness, hates lying, hates violence, blah, 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 blah. Let me compare that to Marxist justice. Because what Black Lives Matter is about has nothing to do with skin color. What Antifa is, they're much more open. Um... There's hundreds of other groups that you never hear about in the media. They're all part of these riots and everything like this. has nothing to do with skin color. If it had anything to do with skin color, why are two of the first cops who were killed black cops in Oakland and St. Louis, for example? Why is the statue of Frederick Douglass torn down? This is four months ago now. Frederick Douglass was a hero, one of my personal heroes for the United States. He was a freed slave. He became a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln, spoke passionately about the gospel and how Southern slavery was against the gospel. It was an amazing voice. How is his statue being torn by these people? Well, that should give you a clue. This has nothing to do with skin color. It has to do with the evils of capitalism and all this kind of fun stuff, and with white oppression, and we'll get to that again here in a second. So when Marx was writing this nonsense about 160 years ago, Marx had two classes of people, and that's all there is. 
had the bourgeoisie. These are the landowners. These are the farmers. These are the shopkeepers. If you own a bread shop, you're a bourgeoisie. If you're a prince, you're a bourgeoisie. Anybody that owns anything is a member of the bourgeoisie, and you're evil by definition. There is no such thing as a good or kind-hearted bourgeoisie. You might be the nicest farmer around. It doesn't matter. You're evil. Why? Because you own the farm. How did you get that farm? You stole it. You stole your bread shop. You stole anything that you have. From who? From the proletariat. That's the majority of people. The worker class, Marx talked about. Okay? So the bourgeoisie steal from the proletariat. And therefore, it's appropriate for the proletariat to rise up and slaughter the bourgeoisie. I even saw a, a Democratic committee member just last week, an academic, talking about if you know anything about world history, when the Russian Revolution, when the proletariat, allegedly proletariat, rises up and wipes out the bourgeoisie in Russia, and they slaughtered the entire royal family, the, the Romanov kids, all these little kids. They gunned them down. And he's talking about, I, I think I can justify that. Wow, interesting scale of justice you have. The little children are going to get murdered too because, after all, their parents are supposedly bad. Well, we'll get to this. All right, so that's Marxist. That's old school stuff. We're not hearing that language right now. We have different language. Now we talk about the oppressors and the oppressed. How does that work? I'll explain it to you. But I have to give you a little history lesson real quick. When Marx does this stuff in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, right in there, uh, it spreads throughout the world. The Russian Revolution, which is bloody beyond belief, okay, uh, happens. They try to spread it to Poland, try to spread it all sorts of places, get stopped. But in Germany and Italy, it really takes off, okay? But the German and Italian version of socialism is not the same as the Russian version. Marx's version was worldwide, no borders. Workers of the world unite. It's the last words out of uh, Das Kapital or my Communist Manifesto, one of the two. Anyways, it's about taking over the whole world from the landowners and so on. Um, but what Hitler preached sold in Germany much better than the worldwide stuff. He emphasized das Land, das Blut, das Volk, the land and the blood and the people. He emphasized German pride. So their socialism was nation-driven, nationalist socialism. That's what the word Nazi means. National Socialist People's Party, People Workers Party. And Hes Mussolini did the same thing in Italy. And so there's a group of serious communists who said the whole world should be under this. And they got forced to flee to the United States where we gave them professorships at Columbia University and all these other fun places. And then after World War II, they go back and they're known now as the Frankfurt School. They go back to Frankfurt, Germany, where they start new idea. We're not going to do the violent takeover that Marx talked about. Instead, we're going to start, quote, the long march through the institutions, end quote. What does that mean? We're going to introduce Marxism to nursery working, Marxism into uh, political talk, Marxism in the hospitals, Marxism into uh, preaching, into the Christian church, and all sorts of places. All right? Long march through the institutions. We're just going to give it a spoonful of time. One of my fellow students at DU was doing his doctorate, I'm not kidding, a doctoral dissertation. It was supposed to be a big academic thing on Marxism and the Texas Rangers baseball team. I'm like, what? Because I didn't understand it yet. Marxism has to be introduced into every facet of life. That's the march through the institutions. So here we are 20 years after I had that discussion with him, and we got all these Marxist students out there who have been taught by their faculty members to hate the United States. It's capitalism. Capitalism is responsible for all the evils, and since white people drive are the ones who drive the capitalist bus, therefore we are evil. So let me introduce you to something else called oppression, excuse me, called intersectionality. How do you know how, who a bad person is? We have to have a scale. So here's how the scale works. Here's the oppressor points. This is what makes you a bad person. First, are you white? Well, by definition, you're an evil person. 
There's no such thing as a good white person. There's no such thing as a kind white person. You're evil because your skin color proves it. The fact that your family, like my family, came over here after World War I, the fact that your family had literally nothing to do with slavery or anything like that is irrelevant. You have white privilege, and it's unconscious, which means you can't prove one bit of this. It's a hugely arrogant claim to claim that all people are bad because of their skin color. How do you know what they think? How is it even possible? Are you a god now? You can see in all people's minds what they think? Good luck with that. Well, anyway, it's just the way it usually doesn't become a reasonable discussion. People just start screaming and threatening and calling you a Nazi and all this good stuff. Well, that's the first part. If you're male, you're even more oppressing. The white males are the bad guys. I'll tell you a story in a minute. Third, if you're Christian, oh, you're off the chart. You are such an oppressive person. And the fourth, and bigger hammer as well, is if you're straight, if you're not homosexual. So if you're a white male Christian homosexual, you are all that is evil on the planet. If you're, you say, well, well, look, I'm a woman, so thankful I'm not a man. Well, you still got three of the bad points if you're a white female Christian. Now, conversely, spin it the other way now. Who are the oppressed people? You count points this way. So if you're black or another person of color, you have an oppressed point. If you're female, you have two oppressed points. If you're a pagan, meaning you worship nature somehow, you have it three. And if you're a lesbian or, you know, transgender or whatever, you have all four major bennies. Your voice is authentic. The oppressed voices are inauthentic. We don't need to listen to them anymore. They've destroyed the world through capitalism and all this kind of stuff. So this is how it works. So you're just literally defined into whether you're a good person or not by your skin color and other things that you can't possibly change. Now, let me give you a little story. Um, there's a guy from Isleth Seminary. I should have told you. Um, I had to take a class at Isleth Seminary when I was uh, at the University of Denver. Every Methodist school has a seminary next to it, so SMU, Duke, all these schools. So I'm taking classes at Isleth Seminary in Denver, two classes. The first one was so interesting. They hated the ground I walked on. I didn't understand it. Yeah, I'm an obnoxious jerk, but uh, they didn't even know that about me yet. They just hated because I, I'd gone to a conservative Christian school. Anyways, it's fascinating. You could find pictures of Jesus on the teacher's walls. Wow. I live with... It's much easier to have Buddhists and witches there than Christians. You'll find a lot more Buddhists than witches. So, anyways, Ilef has pictures. Some of the faculty had pictures of Jesus on the wall. Only it's a different-looking Jesus than you've ever seen before. It's Jesus with a red bandana on, holding an AK-47 to shoot the landowners down in Venezuela or Bolivia or something like that. Welcome to liberation theology in the Catholic Church, which is like the first movement of, of cultural relativism or cultural theory, critical theory, into the church happened in the Catholic world. Now it's all over the Protestant world as well. All right. So that's the new different kind of Jesus. Anyways, when I go to the psychic fairs and the places we go to, for about 15 years we were talking to a guy named Sister Who. If you want to be destroyed for the rest of your life, Google image Sister Who. He does calendars for a living. Every calendar has 12 months with 12 pictures of him. This guy's a little bit messed up. He comes to the psychic fairs. He has this blow-up chapel that he offers spiritual counseling. He's dressed as a nun. He's got gigantic gold eyelashes, gigantic puffed up gold uh, chest hair. It's all fake. Uh, he's wearing a nun's outfit and all this kind of stuff. A purple cross across his face, a white face with a purple cross sideways. And we always go, and he hates my guts. He can't stand talking to me because I don't let him go. He wants me to let him go. Then we get new people. We get you know volunteers or interns or something like that. Hey, you got to take a run at Sister Who. And he moved about three years ago, so we haven't talked to him in a while. But we were talking one day, and it turns out while I was at the University of Denver that he had, he had graduated from Isleth. And I said, you graduated from Isleth? Wow. I said, those people treated me horribly. 
They hated my guts. And he goes, Bill, they hated me too. And I said, what? You're homosexual. That's the gold standard at Isla. And he goes, Bill, this is my first in run-in with intersectionality. I never really got into it before. He says, Bill, I'm also a white male. So the fact that he's thoroughly pagan, thoroughly homosexual, homosexual excuse me, still doesn't matter because he's the most evil person on the planet. He's a white male. Welcome to the world of intersectionality. Now, the founders of Black Lives Matter, three women, are black, lesbian, pagans, and Marxists, too. They're the, they're the gold on earth. Between LeBron James and all these companies, they've been giving them, literally in the last two years, billions of dollars have gone into Black Lives Matter, just that one organization. Well, different world we live in now. All right, what's the point of all this? The point is, is that all of this is made up. And again, race has nothing to do with it. This is pure Marxism. They even tell you so online. <coughs> so it makes it even worse for Christian leaders to jump into this stuff. What are we doing thinking like this? How are we possibly being benefited? <coughs> Which I asked my friend from Campus Crusade. How does this possibly sell? Do you have a separate Campus Crusade? You used to have these booklets in the 70s <coughs> about the Gospels, four spiritual laws and stuff like this. Well, do you have now five spiritual laws? Because white people have to have doubly repent. You can watch people at the Campus Crusade meetings last year literally on the ground praying for forgiveness for being white. Now, we all need to fall on the ground and repent. Every one of us does. But nobody needs to repent of their skin color. I don't care what color you are. I don't care if you're polka dotted. You don't need to repent of your skin color. But that's what Crusade has people doing. Not, Mar not people at the University of Denver or Cal Berkeley or Colorado Boulder or something like that. Crusade is doing stuff like this. It's horrific. All right, so let's get to something that we should care about. We know now that God cares about justice. And if God cares about justice, we need to care about justice. You cannot be just if you are not loving people. And you cannot be loving people if you are not a just person. It's really straightforward. God loves us. And he's a holy and righteous and just God. And we have to take that whole package there. We have to take that seriously. You see somebody being hurt because of the crime of being a girl or the crime of being whatever, wrong skin color or something like that in the wrong place, and you sit back and say, well, be warm and fed. I'll pray for you. Something's wrong, guys. God cares about this stuff. And we need to care about this stuff. We really do. Abraham asked the question, shall not the God of the universe do what is right? I think he has. That's what the cross is all about. God's you've heard sermons like this before, but this is a slightly different angle. God's justice and his love come together at the exact same moment in the cross. Nobody gets away with anything. None of us get away with a th single thing. God is impartial. When the nations started sinning, God punished them. When Israel started doing the same thing, he punished them too. His justice is universal, and we have to understand that. He applies that same to all people. The difference is, is that some of us in this world have a covering. We have an atonement. I was talking to this Muslim fellow years ago in Toronto, and uh, he's a cab driver, and he stopped his cab. We had a great talk for over an hour. And one of the things that came up really quickly is his terrified of facing Allah someday at the judgment. Now, Allah is not the same thing as the God of the Bible, not even close, although the Muslims think it is. But my point was this. You have to, as a Muslim, face Allah literally alone and naked, Okay. And you have no idea. There's an angel on one shoulder and a, an evil jinn, an evil spirit on the other shoulder. The angel is counting the times you kept the five pillars of the five obligations. 
uh, the, the gin, the evil spirit is counting how many times you went out and got drunk, how many times you were chasing women that weren't your wife, you got to wait for heaven to get all the women, how many times, you know, you did all these other bad things. And every Muslim I've ever met is terrified of facing a lot because they know that most people end up in hell. And they don't want hell, they want paradise where they have 72 virgins and all this other bizarre stuff. Well, here's the point. I said, I understand why you're afraid to face a lot. And if I were in your shoes, I'd be afraid too. I said, but that's why Jesus died for us. That's what the, the Injil, the New Testament says, that Jesus died for your sins. He is a covering. He protects you. So you don't receive the justice you deserve. Instead, you receive God's mercy. And we have to keep that in mind. That's true for everybody. God's justice is universal. Secondly, God's justice is different because he's omniscient, and we are not. What is omniscient? It means he knows everything. There's no sin that anybody commits that he doesn't know. And we have to understand that and take that really seriously for just a second. I can frankly say it embarrasses me to know that God is watching me at all times because I don't often do what's right. And I have to repent every single day, and that's all right. And I'm so thankful that God is a merciful and loving God. Well, what does it mean to say he's omniscient? Nobody gets away. I read in Proverbs this morning, even in Sheol, God sees everything. Even in hell, God sees all things. He sees injustice in this world. He sees the evils of the sex slave trade. He sees the evils of slavery in general, which is more popular now than any time in world history. He sees what happens when rapists and people attack their own babies. I can't tell you, uh, so just, never mind. <laughs> I can tell you a horror story of what people do to their own little baby children, all right? He sees all of this. Nobody gets away with anything. God is all-knowing, and that's a good thing. Are we all-knowing? Heck no. So when we make judgments, by definition, we can't possibly know the situation. We can only know a few things that we're told. No jury in the, in the country ever sees all the evidence. This is the way the law system is set up in the United States. It frustrates me as a former cop sometimes to see bad guys getting away with things because the jury wasn't allowed to see a lot of the evidence. And there's all sorts of reasons I can't go into. But God sees all the evidence. We don't. So how do we judge people by their skin color? How do we judge people by how much money they have? How do we judge people by how popular they are? We do it all day long. How can we possibly do this? Because we don't know what's going on inside them. So when you say this whole race is this way, oh, a black person did me wrong, therefore all black people are bad. Oh, a white person did me wrong, therefore all white people are bad. Or go right down the line with all the ways we do this. Oh, if a jock, you know, messes up, and that's why we shoot up at school or something like this. I was at Columbine that night with the, the remaining family. This is one of the worst nights of my life. I like to fix things, and I couldn't fix anything. And the excuse that came out was that they were reacting. Cleveland Harris, if you guys remember this, you can ask your parents. Cleveland and Harris acted like they did because the football team had bullied them. Well, Cleveland is taller than I am, and Harris was about six feet. And if you're looking for jocks, sorry to the football players here, but you all know this is true, <laughs> you don't go to the library to find jocks by definition. Am I wrong? You go to the gym, you go to the field, you go somewhere else. You don't go to the library to find the jocks. It's just a simple life here. Anyways, I remember meeting with one family, one of the football players that was killed, he's like Isaiah Scholes, maybe five foot three, maybe right here. Klebold's 16 inches taller than him. And this is about bullying? That's nonsense. But that's what the media still sells people. 
football culture at Columbine. It's all nonsense. We don't know what we think we do, and we judge based on incomplete knowledge. But God knows. He knows everything. When he judges, he judges righteously. When God calls us sinners, he knows who we are and what we do and how we think about it. Thirdly, God's justice is retributive. We have a teddy bear God in the United States. We love to talk about God's love. I've been a Christian 47 years now. I wasn't raised one, like I said. And that's been the number one theme. We don't even talk about hell anymore in churches for like 30 years now. Why? Because people don't want to hear about that. People want a God who's just cool with them. People want a God who will celebrate the day you enter the gates of heaven, no matter what you've did with your life, no matter how you acted towards people. We want a God that just says, good job, get in there. That's what we like. It doesn't matter what any famous person has ever done. What happens? Oh, there's a, you know, a new band member in the choir up in heaven or something like this. This is about how we talk as a culture. We like a teddy bear God. We don't like the God who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But that's New Testament and Old Testament both. We don't want to address that God. But that's the one we need to address. And it's good. You want a just God. You may want it for somebody else. Another problem with us as human beings. We want justice for that guy over there that I hate. And mercy for me. Lord, lots of mercy, please judge him. Nail him, God. I don't like him. I've run into tons of people, including Christians, over the years when I go to all the psychic fairs and events, who talk about how, oh, my God would never judge anybody. Really? I want you to think about that for, what, 30 seconds? You're telling me that God saw what happened in Auschwitz or Buchenwald, and he's cool with that? God's cool with what happened in the library at Columbine? God's cool with the slaughter in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge? The Great Leap Forward in China and the slaughter of the Jews all over the world? God's fine with all that? That's what you're selling? I talked to a lady two years ago that was at this big people's fair thing that we do in downtown Denver every year. We won't do it for now, but anyway, she's from a church that was teaching that every one of us is God and there's no such thing as sin, there's no such thing as evil. So I told her I used to be a cop and we're having this interesting conversation and she admits to me over the course of, the, of that hour she'd been raped twice. And I'm like, how can you believe that God doesn't care? You know evil better than most. And I'm so sorry this has happened to you. You know evil better than most people do. How can you possibly say that there's no such thing as evil? And she looks at me and she goes, well, I can see where you're going. Well, yeah, you need to. A God who doesn't care when we slaughter each other is not a God worthy of worship. We may not like God's justice, but it, imagine a world without it. But these all things are fine with God. We can murder, we can rape, and do anything. God doesn't care because he's all loving. Uh-uh. Sorry. But God's justice retributive. So what do we need to do about this game? We need to be agents of God's justice. Just like we're called to be agents of God's love. We need to be agents of both his love and his justice. You're seeing somebody that's defenseless. You see somebody from a different group that's being picked on for merely the sake that they're a different group. Sister, who's a flaming homosexual? He's heading for hell as far as I'm concerned. And I desperately want him not to go there. I told him a couple years ago, I wrote him a letter after he moved. He said, dude, I love you and God loves you. We're not giving up on you. He cussed me out, which is what <laughs> the way he normally acts towards me. I don't care. All right? If somebody tried to attack Sister Who, I would defend him. Because God hates violence. God hates slander and lying 
and cheating and all these other terrible things that we as human beings do. We need to be people who hate those things as well. We hate it when it happens to us. We need to hate it when it happens to somebody else. We need to be just human beings because that's part of God's love. And he calls us to both because he's both. All right? Let's pray. Father, again, thanks for mercy and grace. I am so thankful you grabbed such a screwed up kid like me, Father, and you showed me mercy. Father, there are lots of kids screwed up all over the place in Nebraska. I know that from when I was here before, 40 years ago. There's just as many today and maybe more. I pray for these students here, Father, that you grab their hearts and their minds and you send them out to this world, Father, and make them agents of, of your love and your justice, that we are passionate about the things that you are passionate about, that we despise the things that you despise, and that we love people that you died for. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Take care. Uh. Well, don't look at me. I don't know where you guys go.